Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This episode of Stock Club is brought to you by Hyundai. Restart your journey towards a greener world with Hyundai's next generation of zero-emission cars. Find out more about their range of electric vehicles and the savings they can bring to your company and employees at Hyundai.ie. Hi there, welcome to the Stock Club Podcast. I'm James, and with me this week is my Wall Street co-founder and chief investor Emmett Savage and our head analyst Rory Caron. In this episode, we're talking about some of the upcoming IPOs that we're most excited about, perfect number of stocks to hold in your portfolio and our favorite land and expand companies so for our american listeners tuning in today should be the day after thanksgiving which of course is better known as black friday last year it was estimated that consumers spent about 69 billion dollars in total over the thanksgiving weekend that's not including the sales from cyber monday that comes the monday after either This year is obviously going to be a little bit different, though. And I have to say, if there's one thing I'm really going to miss, it's all the videos of people attacking each other over flat screen TVs and malls across America. (laughs) Emmett, Rory, are you guys planning to pick up anything this Black Friday? Are are those videos going to be gone? Sorry? Are those videos going to be gone? Why? What's what's happening that would stop well, those videos? Well, there, there is a, if you, maybe you haven't heard, but there's a global pandemic at the moment, Rory, and it's probably not the best idea for people to be going to malls. Yeah, well, let's see. <laughs> I did see a report that Cyber Monday has overtaken Black Friday as the most important shopping day of the year. But every day is Cyber Monday this year. I mean, every yeah. single day is Cyber Monday. I was a late adopter to Amazon Prime. And since I signed up for it there during the summer, there's a steady stream of things being dropped at my door like every yeah. day, seven days a week. And really, I think it's Cyber Monday and Overdrive. I can't remember who pointed it out, but someone said um, it's been a while that we hadn't known what's going to be in an Amazon package when it arrives at the house. But <laughs> yeah, it, the it, last it's pretty exciting. It definitely is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just got a text there before we started recording and I'm, I'm waiting for a delivery driver to ring me in the middle of this. So if I duck out for a minute or two, just just carry the show, guys. No one will notice, um, James. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Low blow. So let's move on to let's move on to some more important news then. So after the madness of the US presidential election, the biggest news that's kind of come out over the last two weeks has been the slew of private companies that are lining up to go public. The largest of these is, is of course, Airbnb, who filed their S1 early last week and looks at the float time sometime before the end of the year. DoorDash also filed their S1, um, the largest meal delivery service in the US, coming hot off the heels of their Proposition 22 success in California. Although it can be really exciting for retail investors when you know, they get the chance to invest in these companies that they might have been watching for a while. We've had an unwritten rule here at my Wall Street for a while now that we don't invest in IPOs straight away. Rory, can you explain just quickly why we have such a rule in place? Yeah, I mean, sort of related, but not totally related, is that um, Charles Duhigg, who wrote a book a few years ago called The Power of Habits, which is a great read, uh, wrote a really great piece in The New Yorker, earlier this week, uh, titled How Venture Capitalists Are Deforming Capitalism, which is mostly formed uh, around the WeWork um, 
fiasco, dumpster fire, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and I would highly recommend people read that article. It was, it was very well written and it, it kind of looked as, you'll hear all the, the normal stories or the, the, the old stories you've already heard about. We work from the smoke and marijuana to the one who president of the universe, but uh, it kind of takes yeah. a look at it from the point of view of the VCs that back the company and, and the kind of lack of um, leadership from the board. So that's a good, that's a good kind of primer for one of the reasons that we don't, you know, go straight into a company pre-IPO is, first of all, at an IPO, someone is selling you something, you know, this, this is a sale event. I think people forget that quite, quite a lot, especially these days, there's a huge amount of private money uh, out there that fund companies to the size that we saw off previously with Uber going out, as you know, or expected to go out at kind of $80 billion. That yeah. sort of was unseen, you know, 10 years ago when a company grew to a certain to a certain size and then private money couldn't really fund it any further. Um, with so much private money now, where companies can kind of continuously grow using that money, it seems like almost indefinitely, you always have to ask yourself a question when a company's IPOing, why are they IPOing now? What's yeah. what's made them decide that this is the moment? And, you know, an awful lot of that time, it's, it is it is a question of finance. They want to grow the company bigger and access to the public markets is, is going to uh, create that. But sometimes you do see cases, and WeWork was a great example, where, you know, the, the the ship had come off the rails. I don't know, ships don't go on rails, but you know what I mean. <laughs> the <laughs> the yeah, ship shouldn't have been the, on the rails. <laughs> the ship shouldn't have been on the rails in the first place. What was the ship doing on rails? Um, and that's a very good uh, <laughs> that's a very good metaphor for um, what was happening. We were and, and how they were trying to kind of get out of that that investment and and basically you know defraud the public markets by pushing it on to them. So. That's not the reason we don't. Uh, <laughs> I'm going on a tangent here. That's not the reason we don't invest in IPOs right away. What we do is we just try and wait and see, let them settle into the public markets for a couple of months, uh, let them find kind of you know the whole support and resistance that we talk that you know traders would talk about when, um, and 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 see a couple of quarters play out just before we kind of make a decision. It doesn't mean users can't you know they yeah. everyone's entitled to go and purchase whatever they want, and there is a. There's a great, uh, I suppose, feeling of being in on the ground floor uh, that people want to to be part of. But it's just a kind of word of caution more than anything. And it's a stance that we try and hold ourselves to. We have broken the rule a few times, though, haven't we? I think we broke it once with Slack. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, mm. I, I kind of justified that, that it was a direct listing. It probably was. Yeah, it was a justification. <laughs> But, but I've actually th- broken the rule on Horizon a few times and, and even with SPACs, which are offering a huge opportunity for, for investors now. But I, like IPOs are the lifeblood of our pursuit and they kind of keep the entire uh, ecosystem of investments fresh. So while we generally have a guideline that we don't invest in a company soon after IPO for the reasons that Rory explained and lockup periods and all the rest. We 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 are very appreciative that they happen because they are filling the funnel with quality businesses. We're just waiting for those to kind of bed down before we commit our capital because a company flo- uh, you know a flotation is for life not just for Christmas like puppy dog <laughs> I mean this business that floats should be around if it performs well it should be around for decades to come so rushing in at IPO feels like a little bit of reactionary but uh, there are times when it is in fact the right reaction yeah and it's exciting as well it's exciting to see new businesses you know it's like a video game when a new playable character becomes you know available <laughs> everyone gets excited about it Absolutely. your analogies today Rory they're I'm just on a roll <laughs> 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 on a roll 
<laughs> so let's dig into some of these companies that are set to go public then. Emmett, I'll come over to you first. Which of these upcoming IPOs are you kind of looking at at the moment? There are a lot of IPOs lined up for the months ahead and in fact for 2021 already and, and the big blistering one that everybody is waiting for is Airbnb and I think Rory might touch on that in a moment but yeah. uh, some of the names that have crossed you know my desk in my research for IPOs are and I'll just run through a few of them I have a list of 12 that are actually very interesting to me but I'm not going to go through them all but one is um, for example called Roblox which a lot of our listeners will be familiar with or be surprised if they aren't familiar with it because it, it's a business that currently has 150 million monthly active users for its gaming platform, which yeah. is a, a game creation system focused on kids. And, and you know, users have spent 1.5 billion hours per month playing Roblox games. A game, like this is a, a game maker, if you like, that I never even heard of before <laughs> Prospectus was launched. So um, I think revenues are forecast to hit like a quarter of a billion this year um, and I just when I looked at it I, I, I looked up what did EA's FIFA which is kind of the game that is played in yeah. my house a lot what has it had it had 10 million play, ten million players 450 million matches I mean you put that beside Roblox's 150 million monthly active users it kind of puts a frame it's a frame of reference I guess it is a huge one and um, there aren't a lot of details maybe you have some details on Roblox IPO do you Rory? It's definitely like I think it's probably one of the most interesting S1s I've read in a while and I only got a a chance to quickly glance through it but some of the numbers are outstanding standing like 75 percent of American children between the ages of 9 and 12 play Roblox regularly with wow. friends. Like, that's according oh, to the company. Seventy five percent of American children ages uh, 9 through 12 play Roblox. What? Um, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, and you think like, oh, well, is there any money in that? Yes, there's loads of money in it. They uh, brought <laughs> yeah. in uh, $1.2 billion in bookings in just the first nine months of this year. Um, and what's the problem? So I, I knew very little about Roblox before this S1, I thought it was a game, just kind of like Minecraft. And in a way, I suppose it is, but it's actually not at all. It's it's a it's a kind of uh, game engine where you can build your own games using a kind of building block uh, system that's very similar to Minecraft. Obviously, that's where I kind of got the, um, I made the connection. Uh, but yeah, so the idea is that it's very kind of low graphic. You build a character, there's, you know, uh, something like 18 million different type of games that have been developed by people throughout the system. It claims to be very child-friendly um, and, and they've got this kind of internal currency system which they call Robux, which was um, a great idea. Uh, and similar to kind of Apple or, or Google, they take this 30% cut from the developer. So any money that's generated within someone's game, they get a 30% cut. But, and this is the really interesting bit, there's also an internal exchange rate within the company, uh, which basically means that at the very least, Roblox is taking a like 70% cut of all the money generated in the game. So they wow. have incredible like economics for this for this platform. And you know, you might ask yourself, well, are, are developers gonna put up with that? It seems like they are. They are there is more and more developers going towards this uh this platform all the time. And the main reason is that's where the that's where the eyeballs are. This is a company that has, like Emmett said, millions of multi-active users, really low customer acquisition costs because, you know, kids just go on it and they get their their friends to go on it. Um, and kind of as an out-of-the-box package for developers, it's kind of got everything. It's got, like, 
the gravity engines, the integrated monetization, the payment solutions, and they've got like customer support and moderation for all this kind of stuff. So it's it's quite interesting. I'm really looking forward to digging further into it. The big questions I kind of have with it is how safe is it for kids? That's a big thing. Parents, you know, one bad story is going to knock this whole thing off. Um, and how how sticky is it? You know, when, when kids get to a certain mm. age, do they abandon it? The, some of the reading I've found is that no, actually what happens is the younger players play the games and then as they get older, they start developing games. So that's quite interesting. Okay. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And surely surely they're, wide, they're riding on a big tailwind from COVID as well and, and the lockdowns. Yeah, huge. It's become such a vital form of entertainment for parents with their kids, you know, getting, you know, as much as it might not be healthy, kids are spending an awful lot more time in front of the screens these days. And, you know, as we say with games, games have a huge entertainment of value payoff you know you pay a small amount you get you know hundreds of hours of entertainment out of it um it's also kind of it's it's really on this uh the the right in the crest of this wave of a kind of new generation of games which are a lot more about social network and rather than kind of a single transaction it's kind of a game as a service you pay as you go as you play and as you add more stuff to it yeah I, i read a story somewhere about kids hosting birthday parties on roblox over the last few months yeah, you can rent out a server. You can do loads of stuff. I mean, Little Nas, the um, what's the song? Luke, you're the young one. Old here. Town Road. Uh, Old, Town Old Town Road. Road. <laughs> Come on, Rory. <laughs> Boomer. Old Town Road. He had a, he, oh, yeah. he hosted a. You uh, played a gig there. A gig there, with, and like 33 million people attended it in this virtual space. Um, the well, your your point there, Rory, about gamers become coders. Well, it was this kind of platform that gave birth to the second richest person in the world none other than Mr. Elon Musk, who I think moved in second place very recently. And it was a very, very similar precursor to Roblox back in, I presume, late 80s or 90s, where Elon Musk started to learn his coding chops. And next thing you know, world dominance. So we're, we're getting a new is. generation, a new generation of Elon Musk's brilliant. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think it's going, I think it's and going, I think Roblox is due to go any day now, something okay. like an IPO valuation of 8 billion. Wow. Any other companies you're looking at? Well, I have a few. I'll just let me hit you with a few. Bumble is what a name that might be familiar to some of our listeners. It's, um, I suppose it's a, it's a Tinder-esque dating app. Uh, but I think it's going to IPO in early 2021, something like six to $8 billion uh, valuation. But it, 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 it has reached more than 100 million users in 2020, yeah. which it monetizes via advertising as well as a, a premium subscription option, which sounds very like Tinder. So um, that is one that I think is quite interesting, but it's a very crowded space. Barriers to entry are quite low. I think they have a nice angle, the fact that the, the female is in charge, but it's, it's definitely one to watch. And, and it's, it's one of those giants sitting outside Match.com's wheelhouse. Yeah. Match.com, as our listeners know, also own Tinder, amongst very many other ones. Uh, another, another IPO that I'm quite intrigued in is... Uh, one that is sticks out like sore thumb because it's actually profitable and it's called App Loving. <laughs> App Loving, I know it's strange. App Loving, um, bizarrely, is profitable since it was founded in 2012. I don't um, trust it. No, yeah, exactly. I don't like this it at is all. true. What's going on here? <laughs> Yeah, so what it has done, and this is quite interesting, um, following a Roblox conversation, it's built a platform to help game developers build, manage, and monetize their apps. And the, the company has created its own gaming studio called Line Studios, and it has 750 million daily active users. And 
uh, reaches more than 2 billion devices every month with its assets. So this is a big deal that you possibly have never heard of app loving. So that's another one that I think is very interesting. Uh, there is, they're kind of talking about early 2021 for it to go, to go live with IPO. Another is Instacart, a company that, uh, have we discussed on the podcast before? I'm not sure, but um, 2010, uh, the founder of Instacart uh, left his job with the fulfillment center at Amazon. He moved to San Francisco and he decided he was starting a business and, and, uh, as these things go, he found a lot of resistance and speed bumps and tried product after product after product. I think he went at, at it something like two dozen times, he had two dozen startups, but he eventually hit on something which was an on-demand network for delivering products and groceries to your home. Um, and at the heart of it was an app, which is kind of connected to people who went off and did the shopping for you, which I think is an absolutely wonderful business believe me so um the, la the last round instacart it's a big deal already i mean the yeah. last round of instacart valued it at something like 18 billion dollars um so there's no real es estimation it's ipo valuation but uh, my one of my predictions and we usually do this in january but i do think instacart will be one of i think it's going to be in the top three biggest ipos of 2021 wow. Well, I yeah. go on. I have more, James. Well, I keep going. You're telling me to shut up. <laughs> we, we've better let Rory talk for a while. <laughs> Rory, any, any Rory, ideas what, you're what looking you at? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for letting me speak. For <laughs> No, um, other, I mean, Airbnb has to be mentioned, doesn't it? Like, that's, yeah, that's absolutely. Big, the big, big news. You know, as a consumer, I've been a fan of Airbnb for close to a decade now. Um, I think, like, with Airbnb, before the pandemic, definitely, there was a couple of kind of like lingering concerns about the business as, as, as an investment, you know, and that kind of included whether this business was kind of good for the community as a whole. And I think, you know, having listened to multiple interviews with the founders and the executives, I absolutely believe the mission was to be an F positive for the community. And I think in terms of its success, you know, Airbnb did... Above all else, in my view, one of its great successes was a kind of monetized trust, you know, kind yeah. of anytime you go away from your home, particularly if you're in a country that's foreign to you, for example, your number one priority is safety, right? Even if you're not aware of it, that is your number one priority. And Airbnb created this feeling of safety by creating kind of a commitment device or a trust placebo because the person whose house you were staying at kind of had this financial incentive to make your stay as pleasant as possible. And they did this through like the rating systems and the super host label and all that kind of stuff. But like, but also in the background, there was this kind of idea of Airbnb acting as a neutral broker between parties and that they had this incredible customer service to the point where like, you kind of felt like if anything went bad, there would be no ends to Airbnb sorting out the situation, you know, whether if they needed to chopper you out of there on a helicopter mm. to get you somewhere good to stay that night. <laughs> yeah. you know, it seemed that that was kind of the level that they were aiming for in terms of kind of customer delight. Um, and then kind of, but then there was the, this, the negative of the model, which is that it wasn't being used for purposes as intended to. Landlords were buying up properties and promoting them on Airbnb. It wasn't really in the spirit of the company. It was causing problems with local councils, causing problems with housing. And there was a couple of cities that, you know, outright banned them or brought in tough legislations regarding it. So that was the kind of pre-pandemic worry, right? Now we're in a totally different environment where it's the post-pandemic worry, right? And that's... Go on, Rory, is... Rory, say it. Say we're in unprecedented times. No. <laughs> okay, we're in unprecedented times here, people. You have to listen to me now. Uh, no, I mean, like, the, the, so the, the big question now was, you know, what happens when, you know, the, the, 
you know, all all real estate, as we've talked about before, is, is a buy long, sell short kind of business. And Airbnb for a lot of landlords was the buy long, sell as short as possible business, which, yeah. you know, unbeknownst to them, could potentially explode at any moment and did in, in the early part of this year. And so big challenges with the company in terms of winning back the landlords, winning back the customers, being able to enable, you know, the the massive worldwide network that they have in terms of getting, you know, people just weren't traveling, people weren't, didn't want to stay in other people's homes. And they pivoted really quickly and really well, I think, in terms of, you know, I think, Emmett, you, you said, you know, the your own front door is better than a hotel lobby in a global pandemic. And that's definitely the case, you know, and people were yeah. still needed to vacation. They still needed to travel locally. So, so they did pivot. It was painful. They had to make big staff cuts. They had to, you know, restructure the business. Um, I'm sure that was a very painful experience for everyone involved. So it's it's looking like they're coming out the other other side of it. There's still a couple of questions related to their their S one that I'm that I have in my mind. One of which was that you know the with this big cut they did in first of all why was their S and M budget so big? I kind of I always expected Air, um, Airbnb would have this amazing organic uh, sales funnel. You know every Airbnb is the first place I go to anytime I'm traveling abroad. I go straight to the app. I yeah. never Google. I, you know it's straight to Airbnb, and in the rare case that I can't get something on airbnb I, I go off to one of the larger otas like booking or, or expedia but those guys are spending huge money on things like google like their entire businesses rely on google so so the fact that airbnb was spending so much on sales and marketing pre-pandemic on a, on a kind of similar level to the old otas made me kind of question what was going on there and i suppose the big question is are they going to be able to sustain growth with this this new slashed sales and marketing budget in the face of the pandemic. You know, that's the kind of billion dollar question with Airbnb. But overall, love the culture of the business, love the products, you know, rooting for them. Definitely rooting yeah, for them. Absolutely. Any other companies in your watch list? I, do you know what? This is a weird one now because I have railed against food delivery businesses in the past, but I did take a look at DoorDash's S1 and I have to say I was incredibly impressed with it. Um, the opening statement that the mission of the business is to grow and empower local economies was uh, was a good one, I thought. And the way they broke it down was that, you know, they think of themselves much more as much more than a food delivery business. Um, so the three things that they're aiming to do is to create an on-demand logistics platform that can facilitate local delivery of any item. They want to grow merchant services to grow sales in the modern era. And they want to develop a membership program to the physical world for consumers. So really what DoorDash, I feel, are, are trying to, pitch themselves at or their long-term vision is not just food delivery. It's this kind of digital wallet that connects you to the local economy and makes a kind of uh, a kind of hybrid between e-com and local commerce possible with backed by kind of incredible operational performance. Yeah. Um, and their S1 was just kind of really clear. They highlighted their weaknesses the way they, with the exact same um, tone that they highlighted their strengths. They've been very positively affected by the pandemic. Total orders went from 70 million in Q319 to 236 million in Q320. So that's a you know three x jump there, and certain kind of problems I've previously had with food delivery businesses they are definitely they're not totally tackling but they're trying to tackle them. For example, yeah. in terms of discounting, they start out at a high discount in order to acquire customers, and then they kind of re-engage with lower discounting as each cohort matures. So they are they're addressing kind of the bigger problems within that that sub industry, and yeah, it was one of the kind of ones that I didn't expect to be interested in but i am interested in 
Yeah, and it's. I think it's worth pointing out that they're far and away the biggest uh, food delivery company in the US by market yeah, share. They are killing it. I, I mean, not being in America, never really had the opportunity of, of uh, engaging with them, but I, I would have thought Uber Eats would have been a much bigger competitor to them. No, they are, they are owning that space. Yeah, so there's a few companies that with their IPOs coming up in the next few months. I have one more, James, just for, <laughs> just suppose close with something a little bit well they don't think it's whimsical in there but i think it is it's petco and petco is going it looks like it's going to go public uh again it's done it four three times already this is its okay. fourth ipo did second. you not did just you say yeah. an ipo for life not for christmas <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> luke put that part Ironically, out <laughs> dogs. but uh, <laughs> like so they are fairly familiar with it so it should go well i mean I think they should have been <laughs> they've had good practice so these guys have been they, in and out of bankruptcy like, 50 times so you know they're going to be great at it. <laughs> well they 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 had a kind of this kind of nagging issue which is called bricks and mortar and then amazon came along and rained on their parade and then chewies came along and rained on their parade but what they they've pivoted is petco is a health and wellness co so they forget about the 94 IPO and the year 2000 IPO and the year 2002 IPO. It looks like next year is the IPO. <laughs> IPO number four for Petco in 2021. Put it on your watch list, folks. I mean, who could argue with that? Were they the company that was backed by Whoopi Goldberg back around 2000? No, I uh, think Pets.com. Pets. Yeah, Pets. that's I'm right. Sorry. No, no, no. Hold on a minute. Put Whoopi Goldberg backed Flues. F-L-O-O-Z. But I what don't think do? she was involved. Uh, it was it was a kind of an online currency, which nowadays we just call currency. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we call money. Flues, I think, um, and I really stand to be corrected here, was a way for you to swap your dollars for an online internet currency that could be used on internet websites. Yeah. And um, Was the unit of currency called a flues? Like, yeah. you I had think two so, flues. Yeah. yeah, it was. It was basically shut down by the FBI because it was being used almost exclusively by Russian gangsters. <laughs> so who would play who would play Whoopi Goldberg in a movie about flus? Whoopi Goldberg, I imagine. She, yeah, she has to, she'd have to do it. She'd have to take the role. I mean, nobody... Was anyway. there a celebrity involved with Pets.com then? There was, was there? I thought she was um, with Pets.com as well. Maybe you're right. I, I don't remember, Roy. But she was yeah, like the I Ashton mean, Kutcher I, of the tech bubble, wasn't she? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. She was the Ashton, Ashton Kutcher of the tech bubble. Answers on a postcard to My Wall Street, please. Yeah. So let's move on from the IPOs and take a quick look at some of the other things going on in My Wall Street at the moment. We've already spent the first half of this show talking about IPOs, but if that wasn't enough for you, then you need to check out the free webinar that Emma is hosting next Tuesday, December 1st. In this Master Investing Workshop, Emma is going to go through the process he uses for tracking and choosing the IPOs and SPACs that he invests his own money in. Attendance for this workshop is capped and space is already filling up fast. So if you want to attend, make sure to register at the link in the notes for today's show. Emmett, what can um, people expect if they tune into this webinar? Well, yeah, James, so as you said, I plan to cover on how I research IPOs and SPACs and, and the critical websites that anyone who wants to do the same should use. And I absolutely intend for this to be the most practical and impactful and information full webcast that I've ever done. I want attendees to walk away just pretty invigorated about their own ability to look at IPOs and SPACs and what they should look for and how to find an, a good one and how to kind of leave behind one that doesn't look so promising. 
cool so make sure to sign up for that if you're looking for some more stuff to listen to too after today's podcast we also have a new guest series with our friends over at Noah going live today called why the gig economy may have been changed forever remember Noah spelled N-O-A offers professionally read versions of articles from the Financial Times Bloomberg The Economist Harvard Business Review and a load more of top publishers they've also recently added articles from Fast Company to their service meaning that there's even more great business content available for you to listen to you can find that series in the Noah app right now Right, let's move on to Jargon Busters. And Emmett, I'm going to come to you first. Uh, this question is one we actually get quite a lot here at my Wall Street. And it, it comes back to the idea of diversification and the kind of advice we give that you should build your portfolio across a wide spread of companies. But is there a right number of stocks that an investor should aim to hold? There's no wrong answer once you, I would say, have at least, at the very, very, very least... 10 stocks what would you say Rory what do you think is the most concentrated portfolio should be yeah I mean this so this I suppose this question gets asked so often I I guess um, the way the way it gets kind of phrased most of the time is how do I start if I need to Mm. get to this number of stocks you know do I need I had got a friend investing recently and he was so flummoxed by the whole idea he was like but you say I have to have 10 stocks and I don't have enough money to buy 10 stocks. Now. It's like, look, at this, okay, separate the point in your life where you're building a portfolio to the point where you have a portfolio and you're managing one. So when you're building a portfolio, build it over, to- over you know, time. Don't worry about the how many stocks should I have right now. You know, you're learning as you're going, you're buying into companies that you like and you're discovering new companies all the time. So don't worry about that. Mm. Aim to get to the 10 stock points, you know, maybe take take 12 months or take... 18 months to get there and buy a stock a month until you get to that point that you're happy Mm. with. Once you've gotten past that point, then you can start thinking about managing the portfolio over a long period of time. And the right number of stocks is, is so personal. You know, someone, uh, someone uh, a few years ago tried to figure out how many kids uh, someone should have, you know, and I think he came out with 2.1 based on kind of research of how much time can you spend with them and what's meaningful time versus what's just, you know, putting in the hours. And yeah. but obviously that 2.1 doesn't account for everyone. It's some people yeah, yeah. are going to want to have six kids. Some people are going to want to have no kids, you know, so it, it comes to the right number of stocks for you is the amount that you feel comfortable holding and being able to keep an eye on and being able to research, not all the time, but, you know, every every couple of months you should be just keeping an eye on your portfolio, making sure there's been no major developments. You know, you want to, you want to just be on top of things. And for most people, that means, you know, less than a hundred, definitely probably less than 50, yeah. probably less than 20. You know, if you're up with the, yeah. if you're in between 10 and 20, you're probably in a good spot. I think I remember you saying once Rory that, and I, maybe this wasn't in reference to how many stocks you should have, but maybe stocks that you own that are, you know, maybe at or near all time highs. And you said that if you're losing sleep over it, that's the best sign to sell it. And it, it comes back to the idea that, you know, your portfolio is an intensely personal thing and it's your comfortability and your, how it fits into your life and your long term plan is probably one of the most important things to consider. Yeah, and there's so many like, there's so many variables like you can, if if you had 30 stocks all spread evenly you know what's going to happen there is you end up getting a 20 bagger it's going to have very little impact on your portfolio so you don't want that you you probably yeah. only hit you know a couple of big winners in your life you know even even with great advice that we provide here at my wall street for a reasonable monthly subscription um, <laughs> <laughs> but um so you don't want to like, read the promo code <laughs> so you don't want to <laughs> Uh, you don't want to limit your upside when it comes to dividing, you know, your wealth among stocks. But of course, you could end up having, you know, 10 big positions and then you could have 15 kind of small little, you know, 
put a bit of money into something, see how it goes. And and that's different from having, you know, 10 big positions evenly spread. So it's, it all kind of depends on your own personal kind of style and how you want to spread your money around. But 10 and 20 is a, is a, is a broad range for most people, I think. Absolutely. And your stock portfolio is, if you look at somebody who's been investing for several years and has gotten into the swing of it and has built up between 20 and 50 stocks, for example, that, that list of stocks is a, it's an autobiography. It tells the story of that person's beliefs and interests and even risk profile. If somebody's built this portfolio based on their own belief set, you can look at somebody's portfolio and tell the kind of person that they are and the beliefs that they have about the future and their kind of propensity for risk. But um, Peter Lynch in One Up on Wall Street, I think he mentions that he, at one stage he was holding, or the Fidelity fund that he was managing was holding 2,000 stocks, which I think wow. was the highest number I'd heard of. And I have met some very successful investors who will not go above 12. So you can have hyper-concentrated folio of 12 or so positions, or you can become a legendary investor, as did Peter Lynch, with thousands of listed companies. But as Rory rightfully said, I think the right number for a person is very personal uh, as long as you decide you're going for a minimum of something like 10 or 12 or 15 stocks. And and Festina Lente, hasten slowly, build out your portfolio, you know, in build mode for a couple of years and then maintenance mode for the, the rest of your investing life. Absolutely. Uh, Rory, the next question I'm going to throw over to you. And we've spoken about the humanization of pets a lot on this podcast, including that dreaded term fur babies. Uh, and we we currently have stocks like Idex and Trupanion in the My Wall Street shortlist. But are there any other pet stocks on your radar and not pets.com maybe? Well, Emma, you mentioned one the other day, uh, which was instantly interesting. Fresh Pet. Uh, yeah, what, big they, fan. They, do, they make like, there used to be this guy, right? I can't remember what the name of the company. It was Blue Buffalo, I think was what it was called. Mm-hmm. And they made like pet food that was so good that that it was like fit for humans. And the CEO used to go on Jim Cramer's Mad Money pretty much on a monthly basis and open a can and eat it live on television. <laughs> so that's that's what I was reminded of when you told me about Fresh Pet. The, they do like yeah. healthy food for for. For dogs and cats and, and maybe humans <laughs> and humans. If you're really stuck, <laughs> if you find yourself two in the morning, no kebab shops open. Uh. Completely, I know. I'm with you though. And the per- the only reason that I personally haven't invested in Fresh Pet or pitched it for Horizon is that that oh the bane of 2020 was everything has done so well. I mean, yeah. it's been on a run. The, uh, right now, Fresh Pet is a 5.3 billion dollar business. They 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 drop. F- fridges into convenience and supermarket and grocery stores and they fill it with their product um, and certainly to position it as Roy described that it is appealing to human senses and of course dogs are notorious for complaining you know the least from what I can see virtually anything so um I'm sure the, the the loving owner looks down at their dog feels good that they're eating organic fresh wet food and and everybody wins but yeah it's it's a, it's a lovely business fresh pet and I, I can see it going from strength to strength I think it's probably worth pointing out as well that you know to to kind of invest in the humanization of pets trend as you say doesn't just apply to you know things you actually give your pets or, or things used to treat your pets companies like lemonade for example offer pet insurance I believe yeah they've just got into the the pet insurance space and as we talked about when we when we added true panion a couple of years ago that was one of the most underserved markets uh, that i've seen in an awful long time the 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 percentage of pets that were being insured in america was around the one to two percent mark whereas in more developed markets like canada and um in scandinavia that number was up around 25 percent 
Wow. So that was a huge opportunity for Trepania. And that stock kind of just kind of went sideways for a couple of years and in the last couple of months has really shown to be a winner. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, and Lemonade's getting into that space now as well. Another company that I have just had a brief look at was Chewy. I know Jason Moser is a big fan as a as a customer anyway. I've never actually asked him about it uh, regarding as a stock. But the the one thing that kind of threw me with Chewy, first of all, there was the the obvious Pets.com comparison, which we talked about earlier. It's, <laughs> it's a kind of similar business model. Though. The big problem with delivering pet food is it's it's got a very low value for weight ratio. You know, pet food is heavy. Um, and it doesn't cost a lot. So uh, people don't like shipping and it doesn't make economic sense. The other worry I have with Chewy is that Walmart has gone very heavy into this space. Walmart has, has really uh, gone after the pet space big time in the last couple of months. And they've launched a couple of new products, including kind of everything from dog walking to pet insurance, to health, pet health care, to subscription models for pet food. And that's a big problem that Chewy is going to have to face. But I, yeah. you know, I wouldn't you know, um, make a call on it just yet. I've kind of only read on the outskirts of it, but it's another interesting one. And, and people people who use it, definitely customers seem to love it. So that's always a, a kind of positive sign for a company. Cool. Let's move on then to our elevator pitch to finish off this show. Um, over the past few episodes, I've asked you guys to pitch your favorite razor and blade model company, your favorite pick and shovel model company. Today, we're going to go a bit more poetic and ask for your favorite land and expand company. So just to clarify, land and expand companies are ones that initially capture a new customer with a relatively small and sometimes even free product or offer and then manage to expand their footprint gradually within the company selling add-ons and other services to get more money out of each customer uh emmett i'll come to you first what's your favorite land and expand company oh when i hear land and land and expand i think of one company uh first which is trello i mean say atlassian <laughs> makers of trello um and atlassian is a business i admire so much sydney australia based b2b software maker and and why i like atlassian so much is that it really only takes one person in an organization to convert everyone inside that business over to the tool, which usually starts with, sorry, to the product set, usually starts with one tool. For example, Trello is a let's slip it start a piece and, and Trello is a kind of a work management tool where you keep a, a tag on everything you need to do and appropriate assign it to other people. Um, and generally what you'll find is there's somebody who won't deal with you unless you use this tool that they've got. So you're, you're recruited into using it. You're forced, your hand is forced. I don't know. We've seen an awful lot of these kind of things around my Wall Street. Let's um, not name any names. I'll name names if you want. <laughs> Are you thinking Alesh? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Alesh. Our chief product officer. Yeah, exactly. So you should really be doing this segment. But anyway, um, so Trello, you you start with Trello. And next thing, there's a whole team using it. And then there's complementary tools. And Atlassian has a suite of tools. Trello, Jira, Confluence, Bitbucket, and, and many others. So uh, it is by far my favorite land and expand and especially when you look at the numbers behind its land and expand model where i think um 70 of businesses are completely infested by <laughs> by the products as soon as they start so um yeah. seeing as we've already started naming names is it uh jt our, our co-founder here did i hear a rumor he runs his household or his kitchen at least on a trello board of course he does john's <laughs> the most organized guy i know there's a there's a Trello board called Fridge. I'm pretty sure in John's <laughs> in John's arsenal where he can basically keep inventory on everything inside the fridge. To be confirmed, we'll get back to you in the next episode about that. <laughs> Rory, your favorite land and expand model. 
Yeah, I mean, Atlassian is the original land and expand, isn't it? That's the first time I ever saw that that model in action. And it was when um, mm-hmm. you and me looked at Atlassian all those years ago. It was just like, that's yeah. just incredible. It was so amazing because it kept uh, sales and marketing so down. They they inverted yeah. the whole system. They were spending like 40% of their revenue on R&D and practically nothing on sales and marketing. So um, since then, it seems to be everywhere. There's so many businesses we've looked at it that have copied the model. Uh, Twilio is obviously a really big one. Um, Slack, you know, all these, we see it so much in our own business that the you know, com- programs that we'd never heard of before the tech team started using, and now we all have to use them because that's the way the tech team wants things done. Um, but the, <laughs> the one that was the, I, fax, was the fax machine land and expand. Well, this, no, this, so this is the one I'm going to pitch now, which is that the killer of the fax machine, oh. DocuSign, is one of oh, my, of uh, one of my favorite land and expand businesses. Um, again, I think it was John Smith from the business who started bringing in DocuSign and now we use it for kind of all our contract signings. It's so easy. It's so handy. Uh, And, you know, the the company took a big hit when the vaccine news came out as if, you know, people were going to stop using DocuSign when a vaccine emerged. Uh, I think it's going to be a great long-term winner. I'm a shareholder myself. So that's my pick for Land and Expand. Somehow that elevator pitch segment turned into a bit of a grudge match, airing out our grievances around my Wall Street. <laughs> who, else, who else in the business has annoyed us in the last while? <laughs> that sounds like a new segment for the podcast. So let's leave it there. That's it for this week's Stock Club. Don't forget about all, all the great new stuff in my Wall Street at the moment. And if there's anything you want us to discuss or explain on the next episode, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, as always, at MyWallStreetHQ. Or email us at pod at mywallstreet.com. That's P-O-D at mywallstreet.com. Don't forget about Emmett's webinar next week too. The note to sign up there is in the notes for today's show. Please leave us a review as well if you liked today's episode and we'll talk to you in two weeks. Happy investing. This episode of Stock Club is brought to you by Hyundai. Restart your journey towards a greener world with Hyundai's next generation of zero-emission cars. Find out more about their range of electric vehicles and the savings they can bring to your company and employees at Hyundai.ie. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.